So Mr. Mike Pompeo has come out with a new book and it's filled with bombshells. Here today to talk about this with us is Martin Pengali. I'm Jessica Burbank, this is The Conversation. Martin is a breaking news editor for The Guardian in the United States. Thank you so much for joining us, Martin. Thank you very much for having me. So let's get into it. One of the the first things that Mike Pompeo has talked about that you all have reported on uh, is the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, He said this was false outrage. He said a number of things about it, uh, that he was framed as the Saudi Arabian Bob Woodward and martyred for his bravery, criticizing the Saudi royal family. Uh, But in reality, it's Pompeo's belief that he was an activist who supported the losing team. Can you tell us a little bit about this? Yeah, Pompeo is speaking with um, typical pugnacity, which is what he does, um, about the Khashoggi affair. Um, He does deplore the murder of Khashoggi uh, in very strong terms, very strong Pompeo terms. But he is, um, it's one of his vehicles for attacking the US and the world media for how they uh, covered him at the State Department and how they covered Donald Trump in the White House. And so he um, says Khashoggi wasn't really a journalist, he was an activist. Uh, and he says, this is what the Middle East is like. Um, you should, nobody should have been surprised by what, was, what happened in the Turkish consulate. Uh, and today in response to a Washington Post uh, statement from the Washington Post publisher, Fred Ryan, that was very, very strong in rebuking what he said. And I guess in, resp- in response to Khashoggi's widow, Pompeo came out and said he was um, he would never apologize for being more concerned about U.S. servicemen abroad, which obviously in Saudi has has relevance to why um, the U.S. is close to the Saudi regime and why the Trump administration clo- chose to stay close, which is what he describes on the page. But it's it's expressed in very forceful, very pugnacious, very uh, inflammatory terms, as we've seen today. Right. Do you see this as you know the widow has stated these are people talking about you know her late husband to make money, uh, or do you see it as Pompeo sort of correcting the record and establishing his sort of view on the matter? Well, I think we knew who was his view. I think it, it's for money in in the sense that this book is um, a book to sell, a book for Pompeo to sell. A book. I'm not sure if he's got a huge advance for it, but it's a book to sell. It's a book to make his mark on the nascent Republican presidential primary, which most people expect him to enter. It's not the only book like this that's come out already. Mike Pence is out. Um, Tom Cotton, of all people, came out with one before almost immediately saying he wasn't going to run. But Ron DeSantis is coming out with one uh, next month. It's what you do. You sell a book, you sell your memoirs, and in this case, you publish it when the primary is beginning to uh, form. So in that case, the widow is entirely correct. It's it's a book to make money and it's it's a book full of this this Pompeo um, a sort of attack dog politics that uh, plays to the Republican base. He's very, very, very harsh about the mainstream media and about Democrats, obviously, uh, throughout the book. Right, Nikki Haley was one of those who was the target, uh, you know, of what he wanted to convey in this book. Sort of framing her as this political opportunist, making these meetings with the chief of staff of the White House, and Haley has spoken out and, and said some things about Pompeo as well. What do you make of his angle on Haley? Uh, the, the angle on Haley. Um, one thing I would make of it would be that when we ran that story last week, um, 
Maggie Haberman of the New York Times swung in with some tweets about the story and was saying that her own reporting had dug up uh, the rumors that Haley was trying to replace Mike Pence on the ticket in 2018, 19. It was 2019 when Trump came out and denied that it was true, which made you think it probably was if he came out and decided to deny it. <laughs> in one sense, uh, accusing a member of the Trump administration of political intriguing is like accusing water of being wet. Um, it seems very, very likely. Um, Haley is also expected to announce the run for president. She's come closer than even Pompeo into saying she's going to do it. She hasn't declared yet, but she nearly has. Um, I liked, uh, not to make a partisan point, but I thought it was very well put. I thought Ben Rhodes, ben, uh, Barack Obama's foreign policy advisor and speechwriter, made a very good point in response to our story when he tweeted that Pompeo and Haley were engaged in a in a fight to the death to see who can raise 1% support in the primary. Um, they're not very likely to be in the front rank. Now, if I'm wrong and one of them is in the front rank and one of them is the next nominee or the next president, I will happily eat those words. But um, it is a lot of jostling. I think I called it that in print somewhere. It's jostling before the primary. Um, Haley has also published two books since she left the Trump administration, so she's in the same the same game. And how much do you really see these books that people are coming out with, where they're telling their side of what happened during the Trump administration and, and their essential stance within the Republican Party? How much do you think these books are swaying voters? I don't know if they'll sway voters. Um, I don't know if they'll sway voters even in the primary. I mean, gen general election voters, they ain't reading them. Um, sadly, I am. That's what I've started doing for my living. Um, there's not much in there that you would read as a general voter. Um, as a Republican primary voter, polling so far suggests maybe no, no one's going to pay much attention to these ones because um, Trump and DeSantis dominated so much. I did notice the Washington Post uh, released a review of Pompeo's book today, and I thought it was accurate. It is a surprisingly nasty book in the sense that he is attacking, attacking, attacking uh, both his opponents like Haley or his prospective opponents and of course his, his typical Republican targets, um, trying to make the splash. So his having picked a fight with the Post over Khashoggi seems pretty distasteful to me, but it's probably the aim really. I mean, he's, he's called his book Never Give an Inch and he's not giving an inch to the Post today in his response to their statement. That's what this is. It's almost like performance art in a way. Yeah, anybody who's written about Pompeo with their autocorrect on for their spelling has noticed that it frequently autocorrects to pompous, which I don't think is a coincidence at all. <laughs> it's quite poetic. Um, he did talk about John Bolton in this book, uh, saying that Donald Trump had called him a scumbag loser. Uh, can you say some more about the the Bolton affair? And is this connected to, I don't know, he talked a lot about, Pompeo did, his position as Secretary of State, uh, potentially being considered also for position in NSA and Secretary of Defense as the National Security Advisor to Trump. Uh, he wanted to hold all of these, it seems, and was bragging that he was considered for them. And Bolton sort of became a target in this book as well. I think. In terms of the multiple jobs thing, Pompeo, he probably is boasting that he was, it was raised with him. He says, he says he turned down the idea of being Secretary of Defense and he says the National Security Advisor offer was never really a, a starter. Um, but he's still making sure he puts that, that he could have, you know, could have done all, all, all three or, or two at once. Um, 
Bolton is his target because Bolton wrote his own book in summer 2020 uh, or late late summer 2020. Um, the room where it happened, named after a Hamilton song, I think. I'm not a Hamilton expert, um, which revealed a lot that he wasn't supposed to reveal. The Trump administration tried to stop him publishing it and couldn't. It revealed things like how Trump treated autocrats like the Chinese leader and so on. Um, it was seen as damaging to Trump in the election year in 2020. So Pompeo really goes for Bolton over that. He calls Bolton himself some pretty bad things. He at one point says he compares him to Edward Snowden, but says at least Snowden um, had some principles. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's pretty, um, it's a sort of full frontal assault on Bolton. John Bolton has said he might run for president, which um, would be, he'd be fighting, I would think, without me, I don't, I don't mean this as any any personal criticism of John Bolton, but you'd think a figure like John Bolton, a national security advisor, would be lucky to get close to half a percent in the base. <laughs> but he has said he might might round a presidential run to try and stop Donald Trump. So this is all um, Republicans fighting in a sack like ferrets at the moment, actually. And it would be perhaps the same uh, before a Democratic primary if the if the if the nominee nomination was open, there wasn't a president involved. Uh, I don't think it would be quite as vicious if it was Democrats going out. This is Trumpian politics. That was what the Washington Post book review very wisely said. Um, this is a very Trumpian affair. It's nasty already. Yeah, entirely nasty. He was aggressive, it seems, throughout the entire book, but unusually polite about Mike Pence. Can we make of anything that politically? Well, they both uh, committed, I, I suppose the right word would be evangelical Christians. They're both strongly Christian. Pompeo. Unlike Pence, I've read Pence's book too. Pence carries himself much more mild-mannered way, even though he's obviously got sharp elbows. Um, Pompeo is, they share the Christianity. They seem to have shared a kind of alliance within the Trump administration. They are two people who very rarely were in the Trump administration all four years. VP and uh, Pompeo was CIA director before he was Secretary of State. So they're two survivors in that sense. Um, I don't doubt for a second Pompeo would turn his fire on Pence in the primary if he needed to. But in the book, um, relatively speaking, he doesn't. He also relatively doesn't go after Donald Trump. He does. He has been trying to put some daylight between the two of them, but mostly Trump gets away with it. He's not aiming at him. Um, I've said to a couple of colleagues that it's called never give an inch. And when he's describing um, how he interacted with Trump, a couple of times he described having given an inch to Trump. So that is the measure of the book. It's a very politically targeted and chosen book. It's so fascinating. Really appreciate your perspective on all of this and the good work you're doing uh, reporting breaking news with The Guardian. Can you tell our viewers where to find more of your work? Yeah, uh, theguardian.com um, and I tweet at Martin Pengeli, which is pretty much the only social media platform I use. Brilliant, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. We've been witness to the proliferation of hate crimes throughout the United States. A lot of folks who are quite anti-democratic, who would like to live in a white Christian nationalist state. And this is very concerning, but there's some good work on the other side of this. Today we're joined by Eric Ward, who has had three decades of leadership in community organizing and philanthropy, working with the Western State Center as the executive director and a senior fellow with the Southern Poverty Law Center. And in 2021, won the Civil Courage Prize and the first American to do so, which is perhaps signaling to us uh, that we've had quite the dangerous proliferation of anti-democratic rhetoric and hate crimes in the United States. Thank you so much for joining us today, Eric. 
It's a pleasure to be with you. So recently we had Solomon Pena run for office as a GOP candidate in New Mexico and has recently been arrested in connection to crimes committed. The shooting up of several houses of Democratic members of Congress and local government as well in New Mexico. Can you tell us a little bit about this case? Absolutely, so we have a, a former GOP candidate who is running for state representative. His name is Solomon Pena and he lost that race. Meaning the, the majority of that district decided not to choose him. And in his frustration and anger, he responded by hiring other people to attack and target the homes of Democratic officials and their families. And we know now that Solomon Pena actually participated in at least one of the attacks. This seems to be a growing trend within politics, largely driven by the rhetoric of the GOP that is telling America that if we do not submit to them through the ballot, that they will use the bullet in order to subvert the American will. And this is what we've seen in New Mexico. And I think it's important to put it in context. This is part of a long strand of political attacks. Before that, we saw the attack on the home of former Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, where her husband, Paul Pelosi, was injured so significantly that he had to be hospitalized. It is also part of an ongoing series of harassment of elected officials, primarily Democrats, but not all. This includes also the stalking of, of, of a congressional representative out of Washington State, Pramila Jayapal, right, who had individuals driving around her home screaming out profanities that were both racist and sexist, threatening to harm her. And it took her hours to get support from local law enforcement and from federal services. Elected officials are under attack. And if elected officials are under attack, the American public is not too far behind. So it's been elected officials that have been the target of these attacks. But it seems to be that they're attacking a larger system at play here, right? If they're not winning these elections, they're claiming they're rigged as he did in the Albuquerque Journal reported it, that's Solomon Pena. And then we have you know, the January 6th attack as well. A lot of these are stemming from lies that our democracy is not functioning, but it's coming from a deeper place that because they don't like the outcome of the election. They're standing up against it, saying that it was rigged. It's undemocratic at its core. And do you see that as the reason for these attacks? Absolutely, I think we're seeing several things that are driving this political violence. The first is the embrace by Republican leadership of the big lie. This idea that there is a secret elite right, that is at work globally in order to attack and destroy right, white Americans. It's known as QAnon 
or the replacement theory, right? A host of names. But we should understand that that big lie has been used to not just entertain folks, but to subvert American democracy through violence. So we have watched since 2017 a growth of political violence. We should remember that in the midst of the George Floyd protests, Right? Still not understood by the American public are the loss of 19 people who were killed around the country, right? In relationship to these protests, the majority African American. Now we know some of these individuals were targeted through gun violence. We know some were attacked physically, and we know some were attacked using physically using vehicles to strike them or run them over. We have no full accounting in this country of the real level of political violence. But we do know some things. We know that the armed conflict location and event data project has told us, for instance, that paramilitary far right activity in 2022 is on track to exceed the level of activity reported in 2021. The violence is very real. And it is attempting to do three things. The first is mission driven political violence that seeks to subvert right, the American democracy through intimidation and fear. The second are spontaneous acts of violence that are taking place at protests and in the public square. And then the third that we are witnessing is political rhetoric that is grounded in violence. Despite the fact that countless studies tell us each and every day that the irresponsible rhetoric of violence by elected officials drives a direct correlation to actual violence in the streets and the communities of America. This is an attempt to terrify the American public and it is an attempt to try to undermine or to send this message that the federal government is unable to protect American citizens. That's the point of that violence. Oftentimes, it's someone's first touch point with the criminal punishment system or penal system in the United States. Is it's the police, and we've seen time and again the police, you know, letting in folks, members of far right groups, you know, pass through the subway turnstiles without paying. Seeming that they're on the same side in many occasions, we've seen oftentimes police officers participate in these rallies. How does that affect our ability to respond to political violence in the streets? It breaks down community trust. And when we lose community trust between the community and law enforcement, law enforcement quickly is unable to provide community safety. That credibility by law enforcement is, is, is important. And it's being lost in, in very significant ways. It benefits the white nationalist movement. I'm not here to say every law enforcement officer is part of a far right organization. What I'm saying is their unwillingness to distance themselves from that from those organizations and the tactics and the rhetoric cost them credibility within their communities. And that has a direct relationship to, to crime statistics, to the harm that's being done. The end of the day, it's the, responsible, the responsibility of the Department of Justice and the federal government to rein in and to ensure that the American public sees law enforcement as an unbiased agency. Right? That is not functioning in the bias 
of the political partisanship that is happening in our society. We're not seeing it. And in that vacuum, paramilitaries and those promoting political violence are stepping in. And the victims are Latinos and immigrants and Muslims and Jews and everyday Americans who have to go to work, who have to go to school and are being subjected to this violence. I think it's it's really important and, and interesting as well that while their actions are manifesting as you know this anti-democratic sentiment, uh, really it's about white white Christian nationalism and and wanting their idea of what a way of life should be right imposed upon other people. So it's not so much you know they believe in in monarchy or some other careful analysis of political science. They believe in another form of government. It's more so coming from a place of hatred and, and racism and believing in these conspiracy theories. So how do we combat that specifically? More so than just having a bipartisan announcement, you know, we condemn these acts of violence. What other steps can we take? We have to take some specific steps. So the first step is we have to speak up. Right, verbally and defend American democracy. We cannot defend democracy unless we name that it is a priority for the American public. Poll after poll consistently shows that the majority of Americans, including a significantly growing number, a percentage of white Americans, believe in the idea of an inclusive democracy, one that moves all of us regardless of race, religion, gender, sexual orientation, national identity forward together to a society where we can all live, love, worship and work free from fear and bigotry. The white nationalist movement understands that the majority of America opposes its idea of exclusion and political violence. It understands that history and the arc of time is on the side of those of us who believe right, that we can manage a democracy as a diverse society. So here's what we have to do. We have to continue to prepare to deal with the violence. It is will be with us for some time. And we have to beware of attempts to drive us inside Right, and internally based off of that fear. So we have to come together. The second is we have to demand that the American pub, that the American government stands up and defends democracy. Where is the American government? Where are our agent federal agencies? And we have to talk to our elected officials and make sure that they are doing their job. The third is this, we have to get to know our neighbors. If there are folks who are seeking to rip us apart, Right, And they're going to use the idea that we don't know one another. Demographic anxiety to fuel that division. The way we protect ourselves is to strengthen our relationships with our neighbors. We do that not by focusing on our politics, but the values that align us together. The idea of opportunity, the ideal of community, the ideal of safety. Let's start and remember that our values bind us together much more strongly in our politics, and that's where we need to start. Thank you so much for joining us, Eric. And your work has proven that that this is indeed possible. You've worked towards this end successfully on multiple occasions. Can you tell our viewers where to find more of your work? 
Absolutely. People can find uh, the work of uh, those of us committed to democracy at raceforward.org and westernstatecenter.org. I look forward to seeing everyone there. Thank you so much.